0: Continue in our series in the letter to the Ephesians this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, one of the things that, if you read the Apostle Paul a lot, you'll notice is that uh, even though he's inspired by the Spirit and all of his words are God's words, his personality still comes through. And one of the things about Paul's personality is he likes to take rabbit trails. And so today we get one of the glorious rabbit trails of the Apostle Paul. Uh, In verse 1, he mentions that he's in prison. And then in verse 13, he goes back to encouraging them because he's in prison. And in the middle, there's this wonderful rabbit trail about the gospel that connects so well, I think, with his experience in prison. And so uh, let me read it to you, and then we'll try to explain this morning where he's going. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Well the Apostle Paul uh, was a very strange prisoner I think, very strange prisoner. Uh, He was in prison numerous times, we know at least three times that the New Testament describes and each time he does something very odd that makes him stand out I'm sure among all the other prisoners. Uh, Think about the first time he was in jail in the Bible uh, in Philippi, it's midnight. Uh, He has just gone into jail with his friend Silas. They were beaten before they were put in the jail cell, which in Roman terms meant they were beaten badly, like really badly. And so at midnight, they're in the stocks. Their bodies are throbbing with pain, probably still bleeding. And what do Paul and Silas do? They start singing hymns. They start singing psalms. Uh, So much so that all the other people in jail start to listen in and they they wake up and are like, what in the world is going on here? Can you imagine? That's strange. Second time in jail, uh, he's in Caesarea, which is uh, one of the key Roman cities. It was actually the home to Herod the Great, very important city and very important people live there. And so uh, King Agrippa and then uh, Felix, the governor, called Paul out to basically give a defense of his, you know, of himself to them. And when Paul comes out, instead of defending himself, it says he preached to them about sin, self-control, and the coming judgment of God. That's a strange prisoner. And then here in Rome, where Paul is writing, look at what he does. In verse 1, he says, Paul, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then he cuts himself off and goes on this long rabbit trail about the gospel, which we'll get to today. But then he circles back around in verse 13 to the topic of prison and he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, Now letters get exchanged from prisoners to those outside all the time but usually it's the other way around. The people outside are writing to the people in prison saying, hey, don't lose heart over what you are suffering. You're going to get out. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep going. Here, the guy in prison, now for the third time, is writing to the people who are free saying, I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Strange prisoner. And actually, I think someone who can model for us the way that the gospel transforms how you suffer. I've titled the sermon this morning, How to Sing in Prison. You could also say, How to Rejoice in Any Suffering. And yeah, you heard me right. I said rejoice in suffering for three reasons. And they're all found in the rabbit trail. If you look at your bulletin, there are three things about the gospel in Paul's glorious rabbit trail that help you understand how to rejoice in suffering. First of all, there's the mystery of the gospel. Secondly, he talks about the ministry of the gospel. And then lastly, the manifold wisdom of the gospel. We'll take them each in turn this morning. Uh, First of all, there's the mystery of the gospel. Uh, He talks about that there in verses 1 to 6, the very first paragraph there. Uh, He mentions mystery numerous times. Did you notice that? Uh, How the mystery was made known to me, verse 3. Verse uh, 4, you perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. Uh, I love the word mystery. Uh, A mystery is something that is covered that must be discovered or uncovered to be known. Does everybody agree with that? A mystery is something covered that must be discovered or uncovered in order for you to know it. If it's not discovered or uncovered, you can't know it because it's a mystery. It's hidden. And Paul says the gospel has that quality. It was hidden in God. He says that later in the passage. It was hidden in God from past ages, from eternity past. But now, because of what God has done through Jesus, it has been uncovered or discovered. Now, when you watch a a mystery program on TV or read a mystery novel, most of the time, the way in which a mystery gets uncovered is through investigation, right? People go out and they start asking questions. They start collecting forensic evidence and putting all the evidence and all the answers together, and they begin to build a story, a narrative that helps uncover what was hidden. But Paul says something really interesting. The gospel was something that he did not get discovered to him by investigating. He didn't discover it by going out and researching it. Instead, the mystery came to him. Look at what it says there in verse 2. Assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, see, it's a gift for you, how the mystery was made known to me, how? By revelation. The mystery was made known by revelation. I didn't go investigating it. I didn't go seeking it out. It was revealed to me by God from above. When you read this, verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, which wasn't made known to people in the Old Testament the way that it has now been made known in the New Testament to the apostles and the prophets. It wasn't that the Old Testament believers didn't know the gospel at all. It was just they did not know it to the degree to which they now knew it as apostles and prophets. Paul is telling the story of how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, He was not looking for Jesus. In fact, far from it. He was not looking for answers about Jesus. He had already decided that he hated Jesus and all the followers of Jesus. And he was on a mission to kill as many of them and to imprison as many of them as possible. And yet God came to Paul and uncovered a mystery, revealed to him the fullness of the gospel, which he describes in verse 6 as this, God is saving all peoples. God is saving Jews and Gentiles together in one body. God is making one people out of all the people of the earth, taking people from this nation and that nation and this language and that language and this religious background and that religious background, and uniting them together in, in faith to where the only thing that bound them is an experience of grace received by faith. That is the fullness of the gospel that rocked Paul's world. Now you're saying, all right, I thought you said this sermon was going to be about how to suffer. And let me tell you, this is the first way this idea is the first way that you can learn how to rejoice in your sufferings. By remembering that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something you invented. Neither is it something that you went and researched and investigated and discovered. Right? Uh, neither is it something that you have to make up as you go. And improve upon as new changing circumstances come up. The gospel, the good news of Jesus found in the Bible, is something that comes from above and it's for all people, meaning no matter what time you live in, no matter what circumstances you find in, yourself in, it's evergreen. The gospel's fresh, the gospel's applicable, the gospel is trustworthy, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. Now, when we start to suffer in our lives, whether that is the kind of suffering Paul experienced, which was direct persecution on account of his faith, Uh, or it's more indirect, like I, I suffer through health issues or I suffer through work issues or I suffer through family and relational issues. Direct or indirect, doesn't matter. If you're suffering along with Jesus, one of the things that tends to happen in our mind is we start questioning our faith. Have you ever been there? Suffering comes, and I think, hmm, all that stuff that I was taught about God, is it really was it really the way that they said it was? The stuff I believed that God had promised me, had he really said that? Is that real? In fact, uh, there's a word for this now that's kind of faddish you know it's a fad right now it's called deconstruction you know this idea that you uh, because of new circumstances in your life you have to deconstruct the faith that you had before and and supposedly reconstruct it based on the new da- data that you have and lots of people are doing this it's actually a hashtag you know if you're into social media uh, hashtag deconstructing uh, where people are, are taking what they've been taught usually they're, they're Christians or some version of that and they're breaking down their faith to some base level so that they can rebuild it based on the hurt that they've experienced. Now, let me just say for a minute, sometimes God does come and deconstruct you. To reconst- you know, but, but the word that we've normally used for that is renewal or reformation, you know, not deconstruction. Normally the churches use the word reformation. Where God comes because you're deformed, because I'm deformed by sin. God comes in and reforms you, according to His Word. But this new movement and this new thing that we—it's not really a new thing. I mean, it's all, it's as old as sin itself, right? Uh, to take changing circumstances and then to think that I can judge God by my circumstances and adjust God according to my circumstances rather than what Reformation is, which is judging my circumstances by God. That is radically different and actually very damaging in the long run. Here's the key question. Paul would ask us this question. He's in jail and he's not worried. He's in jail saying, I don't, I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about you. I'm worried that you're going to lose heart when you see me in jail. I'm not worried about me because I'm good. He's a strange prisoner. <laughs> Why? Because he knew, whether in jail or free, whether suffering or succeeding, the gospel was the gospel, was the gospel. And it was not going to change. The good news about Jesus, he knew he didn't invent it, so he couldn't uninvent invent it. He didn't make it. He didn't construct it, so he couldn't deconstruct it. And actually nothing in his life could deconstruct it. Nothing in the world, nothing that Satan can muster, nothing that hell can bring up, could deconstruct the evergreen message that came from the very mouth of God to him. The main question that Paul would raise is, who is leading you spiritually? And if it's anything, if it's yourself, whoa, watch out. If it's your circumstances, whoa, watch out. In fact, if it's anything except the Holy Spirit speaking in the Holy Scripture, watch out. Because you're clinging to something that will get shaken in shaky circumstances. I say it all the time, and part of the reason behind our name as a church, Greater Hope, is to say this. If your hope is in anything that you'll lose when you die, it's not a good hope. I say it all the time, if if your hope is in anything that you will lose when you die, it ain't a good enough hope. And and likewise true about faith. If your faith is based, if your spiritual life, a relationship with God is based on anything that you would lose when you die, it's not a good, it's not a sound basis for your faith. Here's the sound basis, the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. Telling you what has been true from the beginning, what is true today and what will be true to the very end. Now, right away, each of us are probably tempted to think, oh, well, yeah, I hope somebody else is listening to this sermon because they've they've got issues. And we don't think about ourselves very critically at this point, but I, I would encourage you to do that, even though it might be uncomfortable this morning. Because if we are not prayerfully, listen to this, if we're not prayerfully pursuing assurance of what God says in Scripture, we are not actually following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear me? If you're not prayerfully in your life pursuing assurance that you would have certainty, that you would know and understand what God is saying in the Bible, then you are, whether you think that you are not, basing your faith or your hope to some degree On something that is extraordinarily shaky. And you can't wait till you get in the jail cell to prepare for the jail cell. And by not pursuing assurance through the scriptures, by pursuing it from some other thing, you are preparing actually to lose heart in the jail cell. Paul did different. Paul had to do different because Paul saw the blinding light of Jesus on the road. And I'm going to tell you, every one of us has to have a similar experience. It might not be that dramatic or literally blinding. Might be. But it will be spiritually dramatic that God would come to you and say, Get your faith off yourself. Get it off stuff. Put it onto what can't be shaken or changed. Okay, that's the first thing the mystery of the gospel. A mystery is something, re- something revealed, something uncovered, but not by our own investigation. Second thing, there's the ministry of the gospel that Paul wants to tell us about. Uh, this is in verses 7 to 9, if you look at that. He says in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, or a servant. That's what the word minister means, by the way, servant. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, I'm the least Christian, I'm the the most unworthy Christian I know, Paul says, was given to me, what? What does it say? The very least of all the saints was given to me this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make known or bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God. Notice something here. The ministry of the gospel, the service of the gospel, Paul understood was a gift given to him by grace. And the way that he was to carry that ministry and the content of that ministry was also based on grace. And this is a second way that you and I can learn from the gospel to rejoice in our sufferings, to sing in prison. Think about this. There's only two ways to relate to God. Only two ways. And in, in large degree, which way we pick is based on how we respond to God and His Word. The first way to relate to God is works-based, merit-based, uh, based on who I am, what I do, what I, my good intentions, what I will one day, th- what I think I'll one day do, or all that kind of stuff. It's works-based. The second way is grace-based, based not on what I do or can do or will do or have done or think about doing or intend to do. But based entirely upon what Jesus himself has done for me. Which one of those two is Paul? Clearly, through and through, Paul is the second one. Because no one who is the first one would ever be able to utter the words Paul uttered. Uh, first of all, a workspace person would not want to be known as a, won't want to be known as a minister. A servant. Right? Uh, someone whose merit, you know, who's, who thinks everything is in life with God is based on my own personal merits, doesn't want to be known as someone who serves other people. They want to be known as the leader, the king, the honcho, you know. And Paul might have said that, you know, to me was given the honchowness. <laughs> Of the gospel of Jesus To me he was given the chief apostleship or you know, He could have thrown down the apostle card here But he doesn't He said I'm just a lowly minister I'm just an ordinary minister of the gospel Meaning I'm here to serve the gospel I'm here to serve you by the gospel Even while I'm in jail I'm still just here serving God And I'm serving God Because it's my privilege to serve God Because God gave me that gift to serve Him A gift I did not deserve Back when I first got it And by the way, y'all, Paul recognizes it's a gift I still don't deserve now that I do have it. Because he doesn't say, past tense, I was the very least of the saints. Did you see that? He didn't say, I was. Sometimes as Christians, we get in the habit of only talking about our sin in the past tense. That's a bad, bad habit. I think trained into us by a faulty view of how salvation works. Right? It's not just you were a sinner. You are a sinner who needs grace. It's not just I was the least of the saints. I am, Paul says, the least. And yet God is still letting me be a minister. God is still letting me be his servant. That's amazing. And then he says, look, here's what I get to do as a servant. This is why I'm so excited. I get to declare not my riches but Christ's unsearchable riches. Not the work of men to save one another, but the work of Christ. I get to bring to light not my plan for your life. I mean, Paul is not a motivational speaker, and neither should a preacher be today, right? Paul is not a here is my 10 step plan to good living. Paul says, I'm here to bring to light God's plan for you to be saved forever. <laughs> The word Paul uses for plan there is the word economy in Greek, economy. I'm here to reveal the economy of God. In other words, the way that God, economy means how things get distributed in society. How do, how do things get distributed? Goods. And Paul says, I'm proclaiming the, the riches of Christ and the way that those riches get distributed to people like us. I'm a beggar, Paul says, who's just telling other beggars where to find the bread. And because Paul had that grace-based relationship with God deep in his heart, when he got to prison, he didn't do what I normally do when I suffer. He didn't get bitter. He didn't get angry. He didn't get offended. Remember Jesus told a story about a man with two sons? Uh, we sometimes call it the parable of the prodigal son, as if he were talking only about one son. But it's actually, Jesus says a man had two sons at the beginning of the story. And the first son we know about, I mean, he, he blows his dad's inheritance. It's really an awful thing that he does and eventually has to come stumbling back to his father after, uh, you know, a life of waste. And his father embraces him. The older son, though, is the one that I think is really important to notice because he stayed around and he did everything dutifully that his father wanted him to do. But when that son noticed that the father loved the younger son as much or maybe even more than he loved him, he got really, really angry. How dare you, basically is what he said. How dare you, Father? I've served you. I've busted my hindquarters around this farm. For years and you never did for me not one of the things that you've done for this prodigal this fool of a a brother do you hear the bitterness when you are suffering through anything in your life and some of you may be there right now some of you may not be there but you will be and you have been when you get there Is the first thing that bubbles up out of you bitterness? God, how could you let this happen to me? It's a fine question to ask. Truly, fine to come to God and ask God why. But the bitterness that can sometimes bubble up with that question is extraordinarily dangerous. Watch it. Be careful about it. Bitterness, the Bible describes it as a root that gets, you know how roots do? They go deeper, 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 even though you don't see them on the surface. They go deep, 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 so that it begins to manifest itself in poison. That's what bitterness does. Where does that bitterness come from? Look at the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. It comes from believing your life is based on merit. Because if you think your life is based on merit and God does not pay you your wages, you're going to be upset. How dare you rip me off, Lord, because I've served you. I've done all these things around your farm. I've done everything you've asked me to do, and this is how you treat me? There is none of that in Paul. He's sitting in a jail cell saying, I'm worried about y'all. I'm just hoping y'all don't get bitter. Paul recognizes there's no way he's going to get bitter. Why? Because he just knows I'm the least of the saints. Who am I? That God would send me to jail, no surprise. I deserve far worse. That's what Paul thinks. And let me tell you, you could say that about any one of the types of suffering you've ever faced in your life. I'm not surprised. I deserve far worse than that. And at the same time, Paul said, I'm in jail. So what? I have boundless riches. In fact, my whole life's calling is to declare the boundless riches of Christ. Being in jail can't take those riches from me. Being in jail can't make the economy of God crash. Same thing. We should probably remind ourselves today. If the American economy crashes, God's economy doesn't crash. If your own personal family economy is struggling right now, God's economy is not struggling. And so if your economy is struggling, no surprise, I deserve far worse. But also, no big deal, because I have boundless riches in Jesus. You see how Paul thinks? You see why he's a strange prisoner? Uh, Knowing that we're saved by grace, even us, even me, that I'm saved by grace, wow, wow, even me, flushes out the bitterness that tries to take root in my heart. It doesn't mean you won't feel bitter initially, but it means you'll have something to do with that. You'll be able to pluck it up and flush it out because you recognize, man, I, I I can't demand anything of the Lord. There ain't no such thing as a demand when it comes to me and God. At least me towards God. He can demand a lot from me, but there's nothing I can demand from him. I deserve way worse than I've ever gotten. And yet he spared me it. And he's told me he's going to spare me forever from the worst thing that I deserve. Hell. And instead of hell, he's not just going to give me neutrality with him, he's going to give me boundless riches a a buy in to his glorious economy forever that I'm going to one day get to cash in on in full in heaven who cares about jail cells it's radical isn't it really let me tell you, a lot easier for me to stand up here and say these things Right, And I recognize that, totally. Don't take me this morning as someone who thinks, I do it as well as I say it. No. There's many things that I'm learning from this as I share it with you. Last thing this morning Paul mentions is the manifold wisdom of God. It's a mystery. He knew he didn't invent it, so he couldn't uninvent it. Uh, It's a ministry. He knew he received it as a gift, and so he couldn't you know, uh, unearn it (laughs) because it was never earned in the first place. But lastly, he knows that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the gospel. And you see that there in verses 10 to 13. Look at verse 10. All these things came to me so that through the church, through, through the whole community of believers, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And this manifold wisdom was according to the eternal purpose that God realized in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. That word manifold is is a beautiful word. Uh, It's used elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, For example, that word describes the many-colored coat of Joseph. Same word that translates the Hebrew word for the multicolored coat of Joseph, the technicolor coat uh, of Joseph. Uh, in other words, it describes something that has lots of different aspects to it, many colors. Or could describe a diamond with many facets. Uh, it's also uh, used to describe uh, people who are very skilled at many things. Uh, so you could describe a handyman or, or, a, um, or a craftsman as being manifold with the same word. Uh, they're versatile. They're able to do all kinds of things. Uh, I think about a Swiss army knife. is manifold you know it's got lots of different things in fact they designed it that way for that reason that you can be in just about any situation and in that one little tool that you can fit in your pocket you can pull it out and find some tool implement to help you with whatever you're facing right Mm -hmm. swiss army knife paul is saying god's wisdom is a swiss army knife Mm -hmm. it's a multicolored coat that is given to you in the gospel it's a diamond with many facets You cannot be in any situation to which the gospel can't apply. Right? There is no situation that could ever happen in your life that the gospel is inapplicable to. That the gospel has no answers for. That the gospel gives no guidance to help you endure. For one very important reason. Because, as he says in verse 11, the gospel was according to God's eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus. Think about how God realized his eternal purpose through Jesus. Think about it this morning. What did Jesus do to realize the eternal purpose of God? Did Jesus start a political campaign and get elected into office? Did Jesus uh, start a business and become wildly successful to realize the eternal plan of God? Uh, Did Jesus build his dream house to realize the eternal purpose of God? What did Jesus do to realize the eternal purpose of God in the world for all people, Jew and Gentile? I know you know it. Somebody say it. He died. He suffered. He suffered in the most awful way, in fact. What worse than Paul. He was nailed to a Roman cross. And suffered on that cross until he died. And buried in a tomb that didn't even belong to him because he couldn't afford one. That man saved the world and realized the eternal purpose of God. And in that, let me tell you, is Swiss army knife wisdom. You know, there are some things that if you didn't see it, you wouldn't believe it. Like, th- I thought about that this week. I'm, I'm preparing. Remember I told you I'm doing a vegetable garden this, this year as one of my things? So I, I was preparing the ground to start planting. And I, start, I started thinking, man, you know, who is the first? It had to be an Adam and Eve, I guess, the first person to plant something. And how strange that seems as an activity. Like, who, know, who would have known? I'm going to take this little tiny thing and you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to, just a couple of inches in the dirt, I'm going to stick it in there and cover it and see what happens. <laughs> You know, like, who would ever think that that would produce something you could eat? It's just weird. It's actually weird when you think about it. And the only reason it's not weird to us is because we've seen it happen, and generationally we know that's what happens. You put that little thing in there, and then something's going to come out, and you're going to be able to eat it. strange, though, until you see it. Paul's a strange prisoner because he saw how a certain strange thing works. When Jesus died on the cross, what did everyone see, including the disciples who sat there and watched it? Failure. The end of the road. Dead end. Disappointment. Suffering with no redemption. Loss. Pain with no silver lining. That's all that they could see. I mean, if, if you were there, let me tell you, that's all you'd be able to see too. There's a man dying on a cross. The only reason we know today that that's victory is the same reason that we know planting a seed in the ground might produce something you can eat. It's because only because we saw Jesus do it. But in the actual act of it, you looked at Jesus and you thought, what a disappointing end to a pretty, well, he had potential. But what a disappointing end to a life that had potential. And yet Paul, when he saw Jesus ra- risen from the dead, and he did see Jesus physically raised. It was you know, many months after, and he was the last apostle to see him for sure, but he saw Jesus on that road. He understood how things work in God's economy. This backwards wisdom, which is a Swiss army knife. God is able to bring maximum glory out of maximum suffering. Your life, like a seed, when it's planted in the ground and it suffers and it dies, can produce something that's good, and in fact, better than it was before. Uh, squash is better than a squash seed, <laughs> right? The vegetable, the fruit is better than the seed. The resurrected Jesus, more glorious, more powerful and wonderful in his exercise of his power than was the Christ hanging on the cross, And Paul knew this. He took out that Swiss army knife and he said, okay, where am I at? I'm in jail. Man, that's disappointing. Lots of people look at that and say, what a failure, what a loser. In fact, people did say that about Paul. He always had to fend off these sort of wannabe apostles who said, follow us. We're successful. Look at Paul. He gets beaten all the time and put in jail. What a loser. Don't listen to him. Obviously, God doesn't love him. And Paul says, let me take out my Swiss army knife. Wait a minute. God's own Son was treated unjustly and killed. And through that, that's how God saved the whole world. That's how boundless riches came to you. It's through the death of the Son of God. What does that mean? That means our suffering can actually be fruitful too. In fact, not only can it, it will in Christ. Uh, When you become a believer, the Bible says, you enter into the fellowship of, of Jesus' sufferings. That's not something we tend to announce in the announcements on, in the bulletin every week. Hey, fellowship of sufferings. Who wants to come and join a fellowship of suffering? I'm glad you're here this morning at Greater Hope. Here's what we have to offer, a fellowship of suffering. Sign up at the back. And yet that is exactly what we do have to offer. And it's good news. Because in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering, suffering is not wasted. Suffering is not pointless. That's why we tend to lose heart in It's because we think it's pointless. We think it's wasting our lives. It's wasting our time. Paul says, no, don't lose heart that I'm in prison. I'm not losing heart. Why? I'm not in here in vain. I know because I saw it. When a seed gets planted in the ground, it disappears for a minute, but it's going to come bursting out. And something's going to happen that's going to bring life to the world. Uh, Paul may not have known exactly what that would be, and often we don't. When we're going through a particular suffering, you know, we just don't know exactly how God is going to use that. But that doesn't mean God isn't going to use it. Or that he's not already maybe even using it. Right? A Swiss army knife is the gospel doesn't matter what you're going through at any moment of your life. There is a wisdom of God that meets that situation. And that says, look at what God can do. He doesn't just work through victory. He works through defeat. He doesn't just work through gain. He works through loss. He doesn't just work through life and triumph and joy, joy, happy. He works through death and despair and darkness and depression. The fellowship of his suffering. The fruitfulness of walking with Jesus. Amen? If you're not going to lose heart, you've got to know the mystery of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and the manifold wisdom of the gospel deep in the heart.